Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Anver Solomon, Chief Executive of the Refugee Council. We're going to be focusing on the refugee crisis and global migration, key challenges of our time, arguably right up there with climate change. We're going to be looking at the work of the Refugee Council and the context in which they operate, a context where we see boats with refugees coming from continental Europe to the UK every day, a context where we see a political response of building walls and enforceability. But we're also going to be looking at the electoral challenges faced by policymakers, which are really important. And so if we're looking at a state of affairs where you have heightened economic insecurities that often drive xenophobia, these are things that need to be kept in mind when formulating policy, when formulating a communication strategy. So at the tail end of the conversation, we'll look at that communication strategy. How do you engage effectively with the public? How do you communicate effectively with policymakers? And you might be surprised by some of the insight at the very end. So without further ado, Enver, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks. Excellent. We're both in the UK, so absolutely zero time difference, which is a nice, nice thing to have. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Refugee Council. You're the chief executive. What's it all about? So we're the oldest charity in uh, the UK that works with refugees. We were actually founded back in 1951 when the UK, along with other Western nations, developed and created the UN Convention on Refugees, one of the key international conventions that today governs how the world responds to those that are fleeing war and persecution. So we came into existence to, if you like, be the guardian of that convention in the UK and to work with refugees that come to the UK. And today, we work with around 15,000 people who come seeking asylum, seeking refugee protection in England, and we support them in a multiplicity of different ways. And then we campaign and try and influence and shape the public and political narrative. And when you say you work with 15,000 individuals, what does that look like when you're saying, what does it mean to work with someone? So we work with people in different ways. We have a specific program, very large government funded program to work with every child that comes here alone. So a teenage boy, age 13, who comes by himself fleeing Afghanistan, we will work alongside that child, that boy, that teenager, as they come to the UK, support them to apply for asylum in the UK, work with them, their social worker, they'll be in a uh, we're living in a what's called a, a care placement, and we will support the staff working with them. We also work with adults and families in the asylum system, and there we provide them with advice and support. We also critically help them with their therapeutic needs. People are very traumatized. We have a 12-week program of support. We have group therapy as well. And then separately, we work with those that come here on specific government schemes like Ukrainians or like Syrians that came to Europe on resettlement schemes. We're funded by councils, local authorities to work with those refugees, to integrate them, to settle in their communities. Mm -hmm. And linked to that, we will do work supporting refugees into jobs. We partner with some big brand names like Ikea and Starbucks, supporting them, developing programs with them to train refugees to work 
as baristas in Starbucks or in IKEA stores. So we have these range of different programs working with people in the asylum system and refugees. Fascinating. Now, in terms of the corporate space, are you talking about IKEA and Starbucks? And we've had the pleasure of hosting Per Hegenis on the show more than once, actually twice, who's the chief executive of uh, of the IKEA Foundation. And he spoke very well about what they do. What about your sort of collaboration and engagement with other nonprofit NGOs? You know, we've had David Miliband from the International Rescue Committee on the show. How do you engage with those other nonprofits who are uh, thematically aligned, but perhaps operationally doing slightly complementary things? It's it's a really important question, and for us, it's it's really key. One of the key commitments in our organizational strategy is as an organization to be a generous leader. And what we mean by that is to always to seek to collaborate unless there's a good reason not to, a good strategic reason not to. So we will collaborate with the likes of David Miliband's IRC that operate in the UK around lobbying and campaigning government. Where there's relevant programmatic work, we might collaborate as well. There's a whole range of organizations working with refugees and people seeking asylum in the UK and indeed globally. We will partner with the big NGOs, the big NGOs like Oxfam, like Save the Children, like Amnesty International, in relation to campaigning. When Ukraine happened, we worked alongside them, working with the British government to develop a program to receive Ukrainians and to think about how they could access visas to get to the UK in a very quick, easy and accessible way. And then the myriad of small organisations that exist supporting asylum seekers will partner with them locally in delivering services. We'll also work with what are called refugee community organisations. So these are organisations that have been set up by Afghans, say, that settled here 20, 30 years ago, Somalis, Iraqis that settled decades ago, and we'll support those organizations to teach them and work with them around how to develop campaigning mechanisms to leverage their influence and to support them around capacity building by giving them small grants sometimes too. Hmm. The challenges that you're tackling both in England, the UK and globally, um, you know, it's impossible to read a newspaper these days without reading about boats coming in from continental Europe into the UK. Um, impossible not to read about global migration crisis. Give us, uh, characterize the context for us so that we get a little bit of feel for, for, for what the state of affairs looks like. So I think alongside climate change, global migration is the key challenge of our time. And it's only going to become more of a challenge as more people migrate, more people seek safety due to wars, due to tyrannical regimes, more people migrate because they're looking for economic advantages. You know, people, America was built off the back of economic migration. The migration from the global south to the global north is going to be part of our age. And as there is more instability around the world, whether that is the likes of Russia invading Ukraine, whether there are other attempts to invade sovereign states, there's going to be an increasing demand to respond to the refugee challenge as well. And we have to understand that context and really recognize it for what it is if we're going to respond. Because like climate change, we could do what people were doing 30, 40, 50 years ago and essentially bury their head in the sand and deny that it is a challenge. 
or we can adopt an open approach, recognize it's a challenge, and seek solutions that are about a multilateral global response rather than individual nations sticking their head in the sand and trying to solve it themselves through enforcement and through pulling up the drawbridge and building walls. In terms of uh, seeking solutions, uh, intervening, how do you intervene with respect to the, the public narrative, the political narrative? Uh, how do you communicate what you have in mind, the research, the reality as you see it on the ground with those who can affect change, whether it's through the ballot box or whether it's through legislation? Well, this is a really important question, and this is, goes to the heart of, of the challenge of, of what we face at the Refugee Council. And the first thing that I would say, which I think is so important, is we have to stand up for what we're for and not what we're against. It's easy in the charity sector to just focus on what you're against, to always be criticising, to always be challenging. And I think the great lessons from the big political victories of our time have been where political leaders, campaigners have stood up what they're for. You know, Martin Luther dream, the obvious one. I had a dream, a clear articulation of what he was for. Bring it right forward. And, you know, Obama's first victory. Yes, we can. What we were for. And all too often, charities like mine focus on what we're against. We don't focus on what we're for, what we, what we stand up for. And if we focus on what we stand up for, we have a better chance of winning the argument. And as part of that, we need to focus on the values, the values about what we're for. Because if we're about compassion, humanity and fairness, those are values which have huge traction across electorates right across the world, whether that's in Europe, Africa or the Americas. Those are universal battles. And there's evidence to support this, strong evidence to support this. And we have to tap into those values by making the case about the world that we want to see. So do we want a world that's being championed by Marine Le Pen in France or Maloney in Italy, where we essentially pull up the drawbridge and say we don't care about the rest of humanity? Or do we want a world where we believe in a global shared view of humanity, where we believe in treating those less fortunate than us with compassion, of showing fairness, of giving people a fair hearing if they arrive on our shores, requesting safety and asylum? This is how we need to communicate, both with politicians and with the public. And then obviously when you get into the detail with decision makers, about the policies that flow from that, you get into a more technocratic conversation about the solutions. But at that level, we have to really articulate what we're for, we have to use the human stories, and we have to tap into the values-based arguments. Playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, um, what if someone said, yes, look, uh, I, I understand about these universal values, these compassion, and actually I'm listening to you and I'm I'm, I'm hearing you now and I, and I understand you and I'm aligned with you. Um, but why is somebody taking a boat from France and risking their personal safety, their life, when, you know, France is a European Union country, it's got wonderful human rights. What would you say in those instances? Because I know from converse, numerous conversations I've had that that is something that seems to prevail among certain people, right? And I think it's a valid question. It absolutely is a valid question. And when I was on the main radio political panel show uh, in the UK, 
uh, not long ago, I was asked that question. And my simple response was this. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the world didn't simply say, OK, Poland, you're the biggest country uh, with the bit most resources and capacity next to Ukraine. You deal with all those refugees. We don't care. Germany didn't say we don't care. It's Poland's problem. You can deal with them. You're a democracy. You've got capacity and resources. You sort it out. That's not what happened. Germany, Italy, France, Spain, the UK stepped up and said, yes, we want to share responsibility because this is a shared challenge to respond to an act of aggression in our world. And the same should apply if people are fleeing tyrannical rule in Iran or in Afghanistan or bombs and bullets in Syria or anywhere around the globe. It's not right for the UK to simply say, OK, France, you take everyone. Yeah, they get to you first before they get to us. To us. With Syria, the world didn't do that. The world shared responsibility. And one of the key principles around any response to a global challenge, whether that's climate change or whether that's in relation to uh, other global challenges, whether that's the global drugs trade, the illegal drugs trade, nations come together, they share responsibility and they look to play their part in responding to that challenge and dealing with it. And the same applies to people fleeing persecution, terror and war, who seek asylum and refugees. Very interesting. Now, you're keen on the policy side, advocating change, trying to affect change that's going to improve overall livelihoods of, of individuals coming in as refugees. Is there, I don't know if this is the right term, but is there a market failure between these key state actors? In this case, I'm thinking in my head, the UK, France, you touching on shared responsibility, which I think most people would probably embrace. Um, is it a question of either poor communication, inefficient communication, lack of will between these key governments so that the shared responsibility can truly be shared? Well, I think it's it's a, a political response born out of what they perceive to be the electoral challenge that they face. So I think across the Western world, as we see you know, capitalist economies develop, a lot of communities within France, Italy, America have been left behind. You know, post-industrialization has resulted in communities losing the opportunity for mass employment, the opportunity for social mobility, and that has resulted in a rise of more perhaps xenophobic attitudes or fears, particularly fears and anxieties, and insecurities, economic insecurities, which I think was the driver, the key driver behind the Brexit vote in the UK. It's the key driver. Uh, my wife is Swedish. It's the key driver in Sweden of the rise of the far right Sweden Democrat Party that is now a coalition in coalition in a type of coalition with the main governing party that would have been unimaginable in Sweden 30 or 40 years ago. That economic insecurity is resulting in communities within electorates across the Western world and the global north responding in a way which is about being very opposed to immigration. And political leaders have responded to that by adopting a very unilateralist approach of building walls to, 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 to react to that. I think what is going to happen 
and we can see how this shifted, it is shifting with climate change, is that political leaders will realise that that policy, that approach is destined to fail. It's not going to stop people coming. It's not going to deliver what they need to deliver. It's going to result in them over-promising and under-delivering and actually result in an approach which becomes an electoral liability. And actually, I think we're seeing that play out with the Conservative government here in the UK. So I think there will be a shift in thinking and approach, but it's going to take time. So I think it's a consequence of our political and economic times, and it's a consequence of how political leaders across the Western world have responded. But I think they're going to discover that their approach is fundamentally flawed, and there will be an opportunity for them to think again. My challenge and challenge like my organisations and other organisations working on this issue, is to make the case for an alternative approach that is viable, that is based on the values that I've talked about. You mentioned it several times, you know, pulling up bridges, uh, building walls, uh, a great deal of focus on enforcing uh, the keeping of people out. Uh, how do you engage? How do you communicate with these uh uh, well, I was going to say political leaders, but also the public as well, because these attitudes, these uh, xenophobic attitudes you referred to, uh, often based on uh, economic insecurities, how do you communicate that narrative? Think about the narrative, frame it, and then communicate it in a way that's not just, you know, sounds good, but actually is effective in changing these attitudes, both uh, both with the public and also with those policymakers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a really good question. And I think the first thing you have to do is you have to think with your head and not just with your heart. You know, in the charity sector and the campaigning sector, we tend to go with our hearts because we're mission driven. So we tend to just want to make the case without thinking with our heads. If we think with our heads, we look at evidence and there's emerging evidence around how you communicate around strategic communications on social issues, challenging social issues. There's a whole evidence emerging, for example, around climate change, around how you use image to, images to communicate. There's a whole emerging evidence around how you use facts. And actually what it says is that if someone says to me, uh, there's loads of people wanting to effectively come into our country, if I respond by saying, no, no, actually, the numbers are very low, they're only the equivalent to, you know, uh, one Premier League football stadium full uh, on a Saturday every year, that's going to make the person think, oh my goodness, that's an awful lot of people. That is not the way to respond. You don't counter a fact that comes to you with your fact, because actually all it does is confirm their view and their fact in their head. So there's evidence, there's emerging evidence about how we communicate. So we have to think with our heads use that evidence, learn from that evidence, and adopt, dare I say, a more of a scientific approach to it. That is absolutely critical and vital. And we have to adopt an approach which is solutions-focused, which recognises that we have to be pragmatic as well. So with the public and with communities, say in the northeast of England, for example, who have experienced the whole range of economic insecurities because of the changing industrial landscape, what's going on in their communities. It's no good going into those communities and just telling people they're wrong. You actually have to start where they're at. So you have to acknowledge and recognize their economic insecurities, talk about solutions to those economic insecurities, and talk about how 
migration will actually be part of the solution and will not be a threat and undermine them. But you have to start with where they are at and recognize and acknowledge that. It's no good, as famously a former Labour Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, did when he was caught off mic, describe uh, a woman who challenged him when he was campaigning around migration. He described her off mic as a bigot. I won't use the other word that he used alongside bigots. Uh, it's no good doing that because it doesn't help take people on a journey. It doesn't help showing empathy and understanding about their predicament, which is legitimate. So we have to be cleverer. We have to be more evidence informed and we have to think far more with our heads than our hearts. I do remember that very well, uh, looking uh, looking at the news that evening, and there's Gordon Brown. <laughs> I think he had his assistant uh, with him. He was talking to his assistant, and, and, and that quote came around. Where would you point people to who are um, interested in getting involved with regards to the refugee crisis, but also perhaps those practitioners who are already involved, but who are keen to improve their communications. And are there any specific bits, whether it's the Refugee Council or um, or, or, or research doing this uh, insight into how to frame these arguments and how to keep them civilized, effective, uh, insightful? Well, here in the UK, there's an organization called IMIX, which has been set up for the refugee sector to think about how we communicate Uh, and how we message, and there's evidence-informed uh, guides on their website which can be used about language, about framing. Um, globally, there's been some incredible work uh, done by an organization called the Frameworks Institute in the United States that now has uh, a, a section in the UK and is working across the UK and Europe. And it's worked on a range of issues, including early childhood was where it started, uh, through to criminal justice reform, through to the environment and migration. So there, there, and, and there's lots of evidence on their website as well. Uh, and they've done loads of work as well in relation to uh, childhood abuse in the UK too, with the major charity here, uh, the NSPCC. Um, so people can look to this evidence and draw down on it. Um, and then I think they they should also be always thinking about um, how we communicate. And, and you can do some very small things. So if you're writing a press release, if you're doing a media interview, if you're writing a quote, you know, don't just bang it out from your heart. Think about what the evidence tells you and how you should frame it and how you should message it. And take time and effort to develop that approach because it does involve us thinking about doing things differently and it does involve us thinking about the impact that we want to have. It's really interesting in the voluntary sector, when it comes to service delivery, there's a whole approach now about always thinking about impact, gathering evidence, gathering data. When it comes to campaigning and communication, we're not quite there yet and we need to, we need to get to that place much more rapidly. Very interesting. And it's great that you're mentioning the Frameworks Institute. I did have their founder, uh, I think it's Nat Kendall Taylor, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He's been on the show a while back in reference to early childhood 
development, the work they've done there with Harvard and the Center on the Developing Child. Uh, for anybody listening, not to plug the episode, but if you go to uh, the website, uh, leegee.org, do a search on previous guests and you'll come across the Frameworks Institute. I think they do some remarkable work. Um, so nice nice that you're flagging them up. Um, I did not know that they were involved with, with refugee um, with the refugee sort of policy side. What about your background, your your personal narrative, your professional trajectory? How did you end up doing what you're doing today? So for me, it's a bit of a personal story. My uh, father's family were Jewish uh, refugees, originally to the UK, fleeing the pogroms in Eastern Europe and, and Russia. Um, my mother came here from apartheid South Africa with her brother. She didn't have to apply for political asylum because of South Africa was part of the Commonwealth, so she could come in through a so-called legal route. Um, so, you know, I am here as a consequence of the UK welcoming refugees. I wouldn't be here today if the UK hadn't done that uh, and hadn't taken uh, a welcoming approach to both my father's family and to my mother. So it's for me, it, it's a personal journey uh, to be in this role. And it's an issue that I've always been very passionate about and interested in and worked in and around. Um, and also, I came into the role at a time when the issue was bubbling up. It is now, you know, one of the, the, the top issues for our prime minister in the UK, believe it or not. So for someone who started out their career in the BBC World Service as a journalist, thinking about communication and how you affect change, um, is really important. So this role is, if you like, a combination of of a lot of personal and professional things coming together for me in a way that I feel quite fortunate about, that I'm able to do a job which feels, and it sounds a bit corny, kind of perfect <laughs> in many ways, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful position to be in, and I feel very lucky and fortunate. In this, uh, fascinating, in this, per in this, uh, perfect job, as it were, can be disheartening? It can be usually disheartening and, and challenging. You know, our staff work with some very traumatized people, the vicarious trauma that they experience, uh, the impact of what we call in the UK the hostile environment towards people that come here seeking uh, asylum and safety um, has terrible consequences for people. It pushes people into... Uh, potentially suicidal situations. Um, it can be incredibly disheartening. And then when you have a political environment which appears to be going towards greater cruelty and punishment and going against you, then that becomes can become deeply depressing. But it's important to retain optimism and hope uh, and to inspire and to adopt an approach which is about focusing on the vision, the world you want to see, and always seeking to articulate that. And to focus on the individual changes that we achieve on a daily basis through, this, through the work that staff, incredible staff right across the Refugee Council do, that make a huge difference on an individual personal level to those that we work with, and to also remember that there are whole sways of the public that are in agreement with what we do and the values that we stand for. It's easy to forget that when the political uh, the political tide might 
appear to be going against you, you you then can fall into the trap of thinking, well, everyone's against us. And actually, the politicians, I think, in the UK and globally are out of step with where the majority of the global public and the British public is. So to remind yourself of that, I think, is really important. So there are ways of, of allowing hope to triumph over hopelessness and to ensure that we focus on the hope and not the hopelessness. Mm. I think it was Emma Chernyovsky who heads up the uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees here in the UK, who in a previous uh, episode was underscoring the the fact that public attitudes in the UK are actually much more favorably disposed towards refugees than one might think simply by reading a headline. Um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. We've done some incredible polling looking at readers of the Daily Mail. And believe it or not, a third of readers of the Daily Mail, and it's the largest individual read newspaper, a third of all newspaper readers read the Daily Mail in the UK, both online and in hard copy. Uh, and a third of Daily Mail readers would support a refugee charity like the Refugee Council. But even more surprising, a third support the right to asylum in the UK. And yet, you know, when you talk to people that are campaigning on this issue, that are working with refugees and asylum seekers, they think everyone who reads the Daily Mail hates what we do and hate what we stand for. That's not actually the case, which plays back to my point about understanding the evidence and taking a more, if you like, scientific approach to really what the public think, uh, attitudes, political change and so forth. Very, very interesting. What's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I'll take the liberty of two. The, the first one is that we have to always learn and reflect. And that involves asking us ourselves the hard questions about why we aren't winning the argument, why we aren't succeeding, why it might be in relation to programmatic work, interventions, why they might not be working. Do we know whether they're working? We assume they might be working. But are they? What's the evidence? So to all our ways, ask ourselves that hard question. You know, are we really making a difference? Is what we're doing working? So reflection and learning. And the second one is to not see the media as the enemy. And I include in that the Daily Mail. Uh, and that might be difficult for some people to, to hear. But to actually realize that the media need to be partners for us if we're going to get our argument across in the same way that funders need to be partners in the same way that other charities need to be partners, in the same way that government at local, national and regional level need to be partners in the delivery of services. Um, we need to, to, to not fear the media. We need to embrace it, um, recognize the challenges, um, but we need to see the media as a partner in making the case for change. Very, very interesting, insightful, and a thorough pleasure hosting you on the show today and seeing you again. Uh, thank you for uh, for shedding so much light on the issue and also for giving us a little bit of a glimpse of uh, tactfully, strategically, how you operate and what are the key sort of things to keep in mind. So thanks for making the time. My pleasure. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Enver Solomon, Chief Executive of the Refugee Council. For information about this interview and more than 200 other case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, 
Just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. And I'll catch you this coming Monday.